0: Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of One Christian Thinks, a podcast that examines current events, politics, worldview, and ideologies from an explicitly Christian perspective. I am your host, Mike Hutton. If this is your first time listening, I ask that you press pause and listen to the first episode where I introduce the show, my motivations, and give some guiding principles. In this episode, we will be finishing off our discussion on the organization Black Lives Matter. This is by far the most important episode in the series where we will be discussing the spiritual aspects of the movement. So I know it's been a few weeks since the last episode. This episode took me a lot longer to understand the material. It took me a lot longer to write the episode, but I'm actually happy that I spent the time on it. Originally, this episode was going to be on Marxism and the Marxist roots of Black Lives Matter. But then just a couple days ago, just as I was finalizing the episode and getting ready to record, I became aware of some new material with regards to the spiritual aspects of the organization. My wife brought it to my attention. It was a conversation between one of the founders, one of the original three founders in the organization, Patrice Colores, and the founder of the LA chapter, Dr. Melina Abdullah. In this conversation, they very specifically referred to the spiritual spiritual aspect of Black Lives Matter. The things they said actually shocked me And they'll likely shock you too. So I'm leaving the video clip of the conversation in my show notes. It's a Facebook video. I have no idea if they'll try to take the Facebook video down or not because some of the the things they talk about are going to shock people and are going to put Black Lives Matter in bad light. But I'm going to leave the link there anyways. Otherwise, I'm going to do my best to... um, quote exactly what they say so I don't misrepresent their views at all. So at one point in the conversation, Patrice Kalura says, Our spirituality is at the center of Black Lives Matter, and that is not just for us. I feel like so many leaders and so many organizers are deeply engaged in a pretty important spiritual practice. I don't think I could do this work without that. And then at another point she says, I'm calling for spirituality to be deeply radical We're not just having a social justice movement. This is a spiritual movement. Now, if that spiritual movement was Christianity, I'm sure a lot of Christians could agree to those words. But what kind of spirituality was she referring to? She discusses that at another point in the conversation when discussing social media. She says, hashtags for us are way more than a hashtag. It is literally almost resurrecting spirits that are going to work through us to get the work done. So that's that's not Christianity. They're Through their social media, through their hashtags, they think it's literally resurrecting spirits. And then Dr. Dr. Abdullah agreed to her. She said, what's happened as we invoke these names is the invocation of their names that goes beyond remembering them. We call out our ancestors. We call them out for specific purposes. And then at another point in the conversation, Dr. Abdullah says, We've become very intimate with the spirits that we call on regularly. Each of them seems to have a different presence and personality. You know, I laugh a lot with Wakisha. I didn't meet her in her body, right? I met her through this work. So Dr. Abdullah is referring to Wakisha. Wakisha that she didn't meet... In her body, she met her after Wakisha died. Wakisha refers to Wakisha Wilson, an African American woman found dead in an LA jail in 2016. So, I want to bring, I want to make this very clear: when Black Lives Matter organizers or protesters say "say her name," referring to Breonna Taylor, or or "say his name," referring to George Floyd, or any any one of the other police victims that have been killed in the past number of years. That's not just about getting people to acknowledge police brutality. In their mind, this is almost almost like a seance. It's It's calling on dead people's spirits, using those spirits for strength to get their work done. That's what is at the heart of this Black Lives Matter movement. Um, remembering the names of these people, saying their names, calling on their spirits. This type of spirituality is so far far from Christianity. This actually refers to practices that God specifically forbid in Deuteronomy 18. We can look up Deuteronomy 18. I'll read verse 10 to 12. There shall be found or there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. It doesn't get much more clear than that. These practices, calling on dead spirits that that Black Lives Matter organizers are, are openly Admitting doing these practices are an abomination to the Lord. I Know there's some black lives matter organizers and protesters who who confess to be Christians who confess the name of Christ and say They're doing God's work with these protests But then they have to reconcile their ideas with the spiritual ideas of the founders of the movement the founders who say that black lives matter is a radical spiritual movement who, by their practices, show that their spirituality is directly opposed to Christianity. Black Lives Matter and Christianity have nothing in common. They are directly opposed to each other, and we have to be very, very aware of that. Now, if you think of this referring to spirits, talking to the dead, calling on the dead for strength, if you think that's some sort of just hocus-pocus, it's, maybe it's a psychological phenomenon that people are imagining they're doing this, it's not real, it's not something to get worried about, then I ask you to reread 1 Samuel 28, where Saul uses a medium to summon the ghost of Samuel when God wouldn't speak to him through any other means. Saul had forsaken God, so God was also forsaking Saul. So Saul went to a a medium, uh, a witch basically, who had the ability to call on the spirits of the dead. And as far as I can tell, this story is not a parable, it's not an illusion. Saul wasn't imagining things, it's not hyperbole. This story actually happened. Saul summoned the ghost of Samuel. And Samuel's first words were, it's, it's in 1 Samuel 28 verse 15, his first words to Saul were, why are you bothering me by bringing me up like this? Secondly, why would God forbid a practice in Deuteronomy 18 so explicitly if it was just imaginary, if it wasn't actually possible? Now, like I said before, I don't believe that everyone who supports Black Lives Matter has these same views. I I really don't, but we have to recall the founder's words. We're not just having a social justice movement. This is a spiritual movement, a deeply radical spiritual movement. In her view, Black Lives Matter, the organization cannot be divorced from its spiritual aspect. And when viewed in this light, it makes sense why Black Lives Matter is so opposed to anything linked to Christianity. It makes sense that Black Lives Matter wants to tear apart the nuclear family as instituted by God. It makes sense that Black Lives Matter has forsaken the biblical view of identity. It makes sense that they're willing to lie and use violence to try promote their ideology. It makes sense that they're trying to tear down A country that was deliberately built on Christian values. Because all these things are things they are directly opposed to. All these things are linked to Christianity. And Black Lives Matter is not a Christian movement. Now this is a huge problem. Black Lives Matter has garnered so much support in the past few months. uh, from, From politicians, from the general public, from members of church clergy... And they've garnered that support on a bed of lies, on a worldview that falls apart at the first sense of scrutiny, on a worldview that is not linked to justice or compassion or hope, because true hope is only found in the gospel. This will end up doing a massive disservice to the black community, and it's no wonder That the results of Black Lives Matter is increased violence, increased racial tension, and the discrediting of actual real justice. So, I think the discussion on Black Lives Matter can end there. I don't think we have to spend more time on it. Researching this movement has shown me that it's far, far worse than I thought. That said, I prepared a whole nother section to this episode before finding out the information that I just relayed to you. I still want to go through the other material that I prepared, but I don't think that I that the new material, the material that I haven't presented yet, will add anything to my case that Black Lives Matter is not a, a an organization worthy of support. I think that case has already been made, being made as strongly as it could be made, but. I don't like the idea of spending hours researching and writing to just throw it all away. So for those of you who are interested in the Marxist underpinnings of Black Lives Matter, let's get into it. It feels a little bit weird to get into this, especially after discussing the most important aspect, the spiritual aspect of Black Lives Matter. But in the prior episodes, we've looked at Black Lives Matter from a few different perspectives, and they've always come up short. We looked at identity politics. We looked at the definition of racism. We looked at the claims of police brutality. And in all those areas, Black Lives Matter statements haven't withstood scrutiny. However, last episode, we also acknowledged that violent crime is higher in the black community. Now, why is this? Generally, within society, there's two accepted explanations. Uh, one kind of on the right wing, uh, political right wing, and one on the political left wing. The political left wing generally says it's the, the difference in the black community is due to racism. Uh, the political right wing generally says it's due to culture. So let's look at the racism claim first. The idea is that higher violent crime comes from living in poverty with no way out. And living in poverty is because of systemic racism. So you can see that systemic racism leads to the black community living in poverty. And these black individuals live in poverty. They don't have a way out. So they resort to criminal activity, selling drugs, joining a gang, maybe prostitution, things like that. However, when we examine this, if we look at other uh, ethnic minorities, we see that this pattern hasn't always been the case. So we can look at the Jewish community. The Jews have generally been attacked and marginalized throughout history. In one of my episodes, I pointed out that the first anti-Semitic laws were put into place uh, over a thousand years ago. And yet... The Jews are only 2% of the US population, but make up 25% of the 400 wealthiest Americans. So if you look at, if you look at wealth, if you, as compared to poverty in the black community, the Jews are doing very well, despite a lot of discrimination throughout history. You can also look at the Japanese and, and Asians in general. They've been marginalized for many years, both in Canada and the States including concentration camps in Canada during World War II. Yes, uh, the the Germans had concentration camps for the Jews, but Canada also had concentration camps for the Japanese. From 1941 all the way to 1949, 90% of the Japanese-Canadian population was held in concentration camps. Uh, But according to Canadian statistics from the years 2000 to 2001, the Japanese-Canadian unemployment rate was lower than the general population and income was higher. So it doesn't always work that if a group experiences systemic racism, that they will live in poverty because of that. So we can turn to the other side. We can turn to the idea that this, the, the poverty level in the black communities is because of culture. But when we look at that, that doesn't always hold up either. The idea is that um, the culture in the black community leads to criminal activity, it leads to poverty. For example, rap culture. Rap culture generally glorifies gangs, uh, guns, drugs, uh, uninhibited sexual behaviour. In general in the black community it's said that there's a, a disregard for education, there's a lot of single parent families. All of this is, well, it's different than the Asian culture, and all of this leads to living in poverty. Now, there is some evidence for this. There is something that sociologists call the success sequence. There's a lot of evidence to support this. And what the success sequence is, is an idea that 75% of people in America will reach the middle class if they do three things. They graduate from high school, they have a full-time job or have a partner who does, and have children while they're married and after the age of 21. So that's what's referred to as the success sequence. Basically, you're very likely to reach the middle class in America if you graduate from high school, you have a, a full-time job, and you wait to have kids till you're married. However, when you look at the statistics in the black community, you see that of the black community graduate high school, while 86% of the white community graduates high school. Uh, Black unemployment is generally higher than white unemployment, and single motherhood teenage pregnancies in the black community are much higher than in the white community, so it seems to make sense. Individuals in the black community, for whatever reason, do not or fail to follow the success sequence, so thus, they're stuck in poverty, at a greater proportion than individuals in the white community. So there is a lot of validity to this, but in general, people on the left wing like to point out that even when individuals in the black community follow the success sequence, they still fare worse than people in the white community. And this they say is evidence of systemic racism. The fact that black people can do the same thing as white people and yet things don't turn out as well. So we find that both these explanations for higher crime and and higher poverty in the black community fall short. The, the, The explanations of racism and culture. So what else can we say? What else can we point to as the reasons for black communities' poverty? At this point, I want to bring up the author Thomas Sowell. And I brought him up before. I want to specifically bring up his book, discrimination and disparities. In this book, he discusses the invincible fallacy. The invincible fallacy, as he refers to it, is the idea that outcomes in human endeavors would be equal, or at least comparable or random, if there were no biased interventions on one hand, nor genetic dispositions on the other. So, what does that statement mean? It means there are generally two explanations, two accepted explanations for differences between people. The far right thinks that the differences between people are, are due to genetics, while the far left thinks that the differences between people are because of biased interventions. A genetic difference would be would be white supremacy, the idea that whites are just just inherently better than blacks. And I, and an example of a biased intervention is racism. The differences between people are due to racism. Thomas Sowell in his book says that both these explanations are wrong. He spends a lot of time debunking the idea that biased interventions or genetics are the sole contributing factor to any one group's success or failure. He says that there are many more factors in every situation that contribute to success or failure. Now detractors like to really disparage his work. They like to say that Thomas Sowell doesn't acknowledge the effects of racism. He's all about personal responsibility. Racism has had no effect on the black community, but I don't think Thomas Sowell is actually saying that what he's saying by debunking the invincible fallacy is simply that neither genetics nor racism are the sole contributing factor to a group's success or failure. He's not saying that they're not factors at all, but they're not the only factor. Now, I want to investigate this invincible fallacy myself a little bit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the genetic side, the idea that differences between groups are due to genetics. This seems to be only supported by a minority of people. It's a view that has largely been shamed out of existence since World War II and for good reason. We've already kind of looked into this idea in our episode on identity politics, that everyone has an intrinsic value as being made in the image of God. Instead, I want to spend a little bit more time on the other side of the invincible fallacy, the idea that outcomes in human endeavors would be equal if there were no biased interventions. What that means in our context is the black and white communities would be equal if there was no racism soul thoroughly debunks this this idea in his book and it's well worth the read if you have the time but where does this idea come from this idea that the differences between the black and white community are due to racism ultimately this idea is linked to something called critical race theory now to explain critical race theory i first have to explain marxism because, for the most part, critical race theory has grown out of Marxism. I'm going to keep this brief, because I want to spend more time on Marxism specifically in another episode. So, Marxism very briefly. Marxism is named after Karl Marx, who came up with the idea that capitalism is exploitation. His idea was that the wealthy people, the ruling class, The elites, so to speak, which he called the bourgeoisie, they only attained their level of wealth and status because they exploited or oppressed the working class, which he called the proletariat. He believed that at some point, the working class would rise up against their oppression and exploitation. They would overthrow the ruling class and create a new world order, a new economic and political system where... Everyone would work together for the common good, and they would equally share the benefits that would come. This political system was called communism. Now, hopefully I can talk about this more in a later episode, but his working class uprising, his proletariat uprising, it never happened, and when Marxism was forced into action using communism. By governments around the world, whether that was the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, Vietnam, or various other countries, it always led to some of the greatest atrocities in history. And that was extreme poverty, hundreds of millions of the, the citizens dead, and other just terrible effects. Because of the Cold War, Marxism and Communism fell out of favour within North America but it was already in the universities, it was already being taught in the universities with a bit of a different flavor, and that was cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism was the same idea that you had the the basically the oppressors and the people they oppressed. Uh, but rather than that being uh, based on economic standing, the wealthy versus the poor, it was based on cultural factors, whether that was... That was race or sexual orientation or gender. And we can see this coming out in many so-called social justice movements today. The idea is that, for example, within the LGBTQ community, the members of the LGBTQ community have been oppressed by general society, by the heterosexual normative society throughout history, and thus They need special rights, special benefits to protect them and help them in light of their oppression. Marxism, and in this case, cultural Marxism, had infiltrated black communities going back as far as the 1930s. And for good reason. The black community was historically oppressed, and even at that time in the 1930s, they were still experiencing a lot of oppression. So Marxism, understandably, caught on very quickly. Moving forward from the 1930s, Marxism and Communism continued to influence the black community, including during the civil rights era. A few examples of this, Martin Luther King Jr. was influenced by Marxist thought. He agreed with Marx's critique of capitalism, however he maintained that Communism and Christianity were antithetical. He was a Christian, he disagreed with Communism. Now, communist groups like to claim that he was becoming more communist later on in his life, but I found these claims were a little bit dubious. There wasn't much evidence for that. Another example is Malcolm X. His influence was in the 1950s and 1960s. He was sort of Martin Luther King Jr.'s militant counterpart. He was much more revolutionary than King. He called for the destruction of the American system because of black oppression. He was kind of the forerunner of Black Lives Matter today. He is quoted to have said, while King, referring to Martin Luther King Jr., is having a dream, the rest of us Negroes are having a nightmare. He identified himself as a communist. A third example is the Black Panther Party from the 1960s. They were also a revolutionary Marxist organization and they had demands very similar to Black Lives Matter's demands today. For example, they demanded the release of all African Americans from jail, and restitution payments to be made to all African Americans for centuries of exploitation and oppression. This influence of Marxism, Socialism, and Communism during the Civil Rights era seems to have made its mark, and it continues to influence the Black community from that time to today. One example of this is with the trial of O.J. Simpson in 1995. So, the victorious defence of O.J. was celebrated by many people in the black community. Not because an innocent black man was successfully defended, but because a black man and a black defence lawyer were victorious over a white criminal justice system. It had nothing or very little to do with O.J. Simpson's actual innocence or guilt. Some people even say they assumed or even knew that Simpson was guilty but they celebrated nonetheless with his victory. This is very similar to the Black Lives Matter protesters today. Marching in the streets, protesting for the release of all imprisoned blacks, and chanting that they support black criminals. You can also see more evidence for this Marxist infiltration of the black community with the disproportionate voting of black people for the Democratic Party. The Democrat Party in the states is the left-leaning uh, political party. They continuously make promises for larger social programs, whether that's welfare, or education funding, or or healthcare In general, increased social programs, moving the states along the political spectrum towards socialism. Joe Biden even said at one point, he's the, he's the Democrat pre- presidential candidate, he said, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. And that kind of implies that the black community, you need us to help you. You need extra social spending. You need extra social help so that you can get out of your situation, out of poverty, out of reliance on crime. But the socialist policies haven't necessarily helped the people they're supposed to help, particularly the black community. So for example, increased welfare spending has actually rewarded single motherhood in poor communities. It's actually better to raise a family as a single mother than as a mother and father, because you get more money from the government. This has only led to increased single motherhood in the black community. And thus leading to increased poverty and increased crime in the next generation. So we can see that Marxism and cultural Marxism have have infiltrated into the Black community, and this is also the basis for Critical Race Theory, which BLM holds to. Critical Race Theory, according to Britannica.com, is the view that the law and legal institutions are inherently racist, and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept that is used by white people to further their economic and political interests at the expense of people of colour. According to Critical Race Theory, racial inequality emerges from the social economic, and legal differences that white people create between races to maintain elite white interests in labor markets and politics, giving rise to poverty and criminality in many minority communities. That's a bit of a, a word salad, but what they're saying is rather than economic oppression, which is what Marx first theorized, the key factor in critical race theory is, is racial oppression, Otherwise, the ideas are the same. Uh, you have the oppressors, who are white people, and you have the oppressed, black people. Uh, white people use the law and legal institutions to oppress black people, and these oppressions, this oppression is shown in social, economic, and legal differences. Now, according to this definition... Critical race theory is based on lies. The first lie I want to show is that white people created the idea of race. This simply isn't true. Divisions by race are essentially just another type of tribalism, which has existed throughout all human history. The second lie I want to point out is that white people and white people alone use the idea of race for their own benefit at the expense of other people. While this is partially true because you can see the slavery in the States and apartheid in Africa, race has also been used by other people as a basis for oppression. For example, at least a million Europeans were enslaved in North Africa during the same time as the slave trade in America. Slavery is not isolated simply to the United States, but it has occurred throughout the world, throughout history. This idea that white people and white people alone are oppressors and people of other skin colors or ethnicities are oppressed just simply doesn't hold water. Now, to tie this back into the invincible fallacy that outcomes in human endeavors would be equal if there were no biased interventions, the biased interventions, according to critical race theory, are the social, economic, and legal differences that white people create. These interventions are the only reasons for the differences between white and black. Now, connecting all of this together, the state of the black community, higher poverty, higher crime rate, Marxism, critical race theory, all of this is not a theoretical connection. Two of the three founders of Black Lives Matter are, in their own words, trained Marxists. In their own words... They are attempting to build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk. Ultimately, they are trying to start a movement for the total destruction of the American system and rebuilding it to be a socialist or communist utopia as Marx would have envisioned. Only, instead of it coming about by class warfare, it will come about through race warfare. This is some serious stuff especially when the movements have as much influence as they do now. I'm not saying that every protester is a Marxist, but they are definitely forwarding, promoting, and amplifying a Marxist movement. And even more so, the tactics used by the protesters are more and more resembling the same tactics that were used during the French and Soviet revolutions and in other countries at the start of communism. I'm going to repeat that the tactics used by the Black Lives Matter protesters very closely resemble the tactics used by the Marxist revolutionaries in pretty much any country where communism was put into place, whether that was Soviet Russia or in the French Revolution. These tactics mirror each other and are a very good indicator as to the direction of the movement. For example, forcing people to kneel for the anthem forcing people to say black lives matter and raise the fist forcing people to wave the black lives matter flag or or as we discussed in the spiritual aspect forcing people to say one of the victims names all of this at threat of loss of job or threat of violence these are the same sort of tactics as used by any other communist revolutionary party and these tactics are used throughout the states right now. At this point, you might be wondering, where are you going with all this? How does all of this talk about Marxism relate back to the fact that black communities have a higher crime rate and a higher amount of poverty? Where is the connection? If you don't agree that the only connection is racism, then where are you going with this? Well, what does Marxism do? What happens when you continuously preach Marxism to a group of people, especially a group of people that has historically been oppressed? Well, they start to believe it. They start to believe the invincible fallacy that the only reason they are in a bad position is because they are are oppressed. And what happens then? Well, if you are in a bad position, only because you are oppressed, then the only way to get out of that position is if the oppressor is removed. There is no sense of agency, uh, no sense of personal responsibility. In fact, any effort on your part to improve your situation would be wasted energy, it would be futile, so long as the oppressor still exists. And this is how Marxism actually holds people down. It doesn't serve to liberate people, but it actually holds them down, because they believe they are oppressed and there is nothing they can do to fix their position. What this means in today's context, whether it's a conscious thought or not, many black people believe that they cannot improve their social or economic position without tearing down all of society. Never mind the fact that the majority of the country voted in a black president twice just a few years ago. Never mind the fact that black people hold some of the most powerful positions in the land and have for many years, with the first black senators being elected in the 1870s. Never mind the fact that many of the most influential and wealthy athletes are black. And this is also why You see such a focus on destroying the power structure of the United States within the riots and why so many white people are joining in. Both black and white protesters actually believe that black people in the States can't improve their position without destroying the country. Now, in all of this, I'm not saying that racism isn't real. I'm not saying that racism is not a contributing factor. I'm only saying that racism is definitely not the only factor, and probably not even the biggest factor, especially given that other minorities, like the the Asian communities we covered, are among the most successful people in Western countries, despite also facing historical discrimination at the hands of a white majority. So we have this invincible fallacy that outcomes in human endeavours would be equal if there were no biased interventions. In simpler words, if you're in a bad position, it's because someone has oppressed you and held you down. We've tied it to critical race theory, and we've tied critical race theory to cultural Marxism and then to Marxism itself. But what's the root of Marxism? Well, remember, Marxism very simply is that the upper class, the bourgeoisie, Exploit and oppress the lower class, the proletariat. Or from the opposite perspective, the only reason the lower class is in a bad position is because of the upper class. The upper class is entirely to blame for the position that the lower class is in. Where does this idea come from? Well, let's let's go way, way back. Back to the Garden of Eden and the fall into sin. To summarize that story very quickly, God created man in his image without sin, but man, tempted by the devil, disobeyed God and fell into sin. When God uh, enters the garden and speaks to Adam immediately after the fall into sin, what do we notice? We see this in, in Genesis 3. God asks, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. God, I'm in a bad position. Yes, I'm afraid of you. Yes, our perfect relationship is ruined. But God, it's the woman's fault. She gave me the fruit. And and you gave her to me. So, so, so Adam blames the woman and kind of just, just a little bit. God as well for the fall into sin. If God hadn't given him Eve, maybe the fall wouldn't have happened. And God asks of the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God, it's the snake's fault. He did it. That's why we're in this terrible position. It's his fault. And I mean, I don't want to say it, but you created snakes. So, and so we see perhaps the second sin in history is to blame someone else for your position. And yet, to a certain extent, all of what Adam and Eve said to God was, was kind of a little bit true, a bit of a twisted truth, but there was a little bit of truth to it anyways. But that did not decrease their responsibility at all. One iota. Now that story is not a direct comparison to the oppression of today. Adam and Eve were created without sin, and they fell. Living in a state of sin was entirely their fault. Whereas after the fall into sin, oppression is real. Oppression exists. Slavery has happened and still does happen. It's often just a little bit more hidden now in the case of, of sex trafficking. People are genuinely oppressed beyond their control. But the answer to this oppression is not to turn further away from the Bible with a revolutionary, militant, Marxist uprising. The real answer is to turn back to the Bible. The first step in this is to see everyone, all people, as having worth only because they are made in the image of God. We've already discussed this. This is so, so absent in today's culture. So often, People only have worth if they are the same race, or accept the same ideology, or do what you want them to do. Anyone else is worthy of hate, is subhuman, and should be destroyed. This shows up in almost every discussion, whether it's abortion, or immigration, or climate change, or racial issues. If you disagree, you must be shamed, exposed, humiliated, you must lose your job, your friends, your family. And perhaps even your liberty and security. There is no intrinsic value for human life anymore. Going even further, the abortion issue itself and even doctor-assisted suicide and euthanasia are clear examples of the devaluing, the dehumanizing ideas that are progressing in society. But that's not the only lesson we can take from the Bible. Because Genesis 3 continues on, After Adam and Eve made their lame excuses by blaming literally everyone they could. In Genesis 3, after the fall into sin from verse 14 and on, the Lord proclaims curses. Curses that resulted from the fall into sin that would negatively affect the serpent and all of humanity. But in those curses, there's also a promise. There's also hope. That's the promise of a Redeemer. The promise of the Gospel that Christ will come and redeem humanity, putting all who believe in him and confess his name once again on a proper relationship with God, and the devil will be destroyed. So let's just get that straight. Adam and Eve, created without sin, disobeyed God and fell into sin. They blamed everyone they could, even kind of pinning some blame on God, in a bit of a, a backhanded fashion. And yet God in His amazing grace, promises a Redeemer to make everything right again. It is this promise that gives us hope, no matter what your situation today. It's not in some Marxist idea, uh, whether that's cultural Marxism or critical race theory. Those theories don't give real hope. It is in the promise of the Gospel, the promise of Christ dying for your sins and putting you in a right relationship with God once again, Is that promise that gives hope for today, no matter what your situation is, no matter how you are oppressed. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that oppression doesn't exist. I'm not saying that all we have to do is preach the gospel and it will make everything in this life hunky-dory, oppression doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. I thoroughly believe that as Christians, we have a duty to fight for the oppressed in this life. But regardless of what actually happens in this life, we also know that justice will be done. We have the hope that only the gospel brings. That if we believe in Christ and his death for our sins, we will be put in a right relationship with God. And that promise stands no matter what your position in this life actually is. So, that's the end of the series on Black Lives Matter. There were a few things that I still wanted to talk about, but this series has gone on long enough. There are other things I want to talk about as well. Hopefully I can get back to some of the themes later on, not specifically with regards to Black Lives Matter, but with regards to other movements and ideas within society. Next episode, we'll be talking about COVID. I touched on COVID in my second episode, But it's been a few months since that episode, and in that time, uh, a lot has happened. I think there's a lot more to discuss, particularly with uh, kids going back to school and the threats of of lockdowns and mask orders and all sorts of other ideas that are kind of going on in the background. It's often tough to know what to think. It's tough to uh, know what our response to this should be, especially as churches. So I want to have an episode dedicated specifically to COVID. Um, If you have any specific questions for me that you're interested in my perspective on, feel free to email them to me or send them to my Facebook page. Um, I'd love to hear some of your feedback on this episode as well. And the rest of the Black Lives Matter series, feel free to get in touch with me about that as well. I also want to point out one thing that you may have noticed. With this episode, I attempted to do something a little bit different. All of my previous episodes were completely scripted. I basically read the whole thing. I'm trying to step away from that, uh, instead presenting just off of notes to try and make things a little bit more organic, a little bit more authentic. Let me know what you thought. It's it's a lot more difficult, it takes a lot longer to record, but hopefully you can, you appreciate it and hopefully it, it adds something to the podcast and doesn't detract. Let me know what you think. Of course, if you appreciated this discussion, I ask that you subscribe to my podcast through whatever podcast hosting service you use. You can also Um, like the Facebook page, every time we post a new episode, it will show up as a notification on that page. So it's an easy way to keep track of the new episodes. I also again ask that if you have uh, family or friends that are unsure of what to think about Black Lives Matter, in particular, I ask that you point them to this episode because specifically the first 10 minutes, really expose Black Lives Matter for what it is. It's a, it's a spiritual movement. We're fighting a spiritual war. It's not a movement that is, is doing good things but is misguided. No, this is, this is a spiritual war. This is far more important than what a lot of people think it is. So I just ask that you, you share and, and spread this episode so that people can understand what is actually going on. Uh, If you want to get in touch with me, my email is oct at allmail.net. That's O-C-T as in One Christian Thinks at A-L-L-M-A-I-L dot net. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep thinking.